Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, in flux as we record on April 20th, the Supreme Court has briefly punted their decision on restricting access to medication abortion drug mefepristone. The American Medical Association said that the recent ruling by a Texas federal judge revoking the FDA's approval of mefepristone, which has been in widespread use for more than two decades now, quote, flies in the face of science and evidence and threatens to upend access to a safe and effective drug, close quote. For the Washington Post, that's part of a confusing legal battle. But for the majority of people, including doctors, it's not confusing, just frightening. We'll hear from Rachel K. Jones, research scientist at Guttmacher Institute. Also on the show, Rutgers University faculty members strike halting classes and research. That April 10th New York Times headline reflects standard operating procedure for corporate news media, reporting labor actions in terms of their ostensible harms rather than the harms that led to them. The strike by a range of differently situated Rutgers faculty, the Times said, will affect roughly 67,000 students across the state. Well, presumably those are the same students affected by teachers, researchers, and counselors working in circumstances so precarious and so untenable that they took the difficult and potentially life-altering step of withholding their labor. That go-to elite media framework, those pesky workers, what are they up to this time, is just one more element making efforts to increase workers' power in the workplace that much harder. The thing is, it doesn't always work. Lots of people see through and around it, and the gains made by Rutgers faculty and the example that that sets is evidence. We'll get an update from Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers and New Brunswick Chapter President of AAUPAFT. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As we record on Thursday, April 20th, the U.S. Supreme Court has extended until tomorrow its decision on whether reproductive rights will be severely curtailed, including in so-called blue states, by restricting access to mifepristone, approved for more than 20 years as part of a medical method of terminating pregnancies. The Washington Post tells readers, quote, the Biden administration, abortion providers and anti-abortion activists, drug makers and the Food and Drug Administration have engaged in a rapid and at times confusing legal battle over mifepristone, close quote. Well, that suggests a sort of informational free-for-all in the face of an actual disinformation campaign on the part of a minority of Americans opposed to the right to choose when and whether to have a child. To the extent that there is any cloudiness around the science or the human rights involved here, one would hope that journalists would sort it and not throw up their hands. 
Rachel K. Jones is Principal Research Scientist at Guttmacher Institute, the research and policy group focused on sexual and reproductive health and rights. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Rachel Jones. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Well, very narrowly, this Supreme Court case is about the authority of the FDA to approve drugs. But anybody paying attention can see that it's actually about much more. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit first about the impact of the introduction of medication abortion. It's been 20 years now. What has that meant in terms of the ability of people to access abortion and and how widely is it used? Right. So we know from decades of medical research that mifepristone is safe, effective, and widely accepted by both patients and providers. And Guttmacher's own research has established that the majority of abortions are done with uh, medication abortions, 53% in 2020. So what would we expect, I mean, immediately and then maybe longer term, if this effort to make mifepristone unavailable, if that were to actually go through, what sort of impacts would you be expecting? Okay, so there's actually a lot that we don't know about what's going to happen or what would happen if the Supreme Court were to impose restrictions on mifepristone. But again, it's important to recognize that any restrictions that are put in place are not based on medical science. We do know that it would have a devastating, any restrictions that were put in place would have a devastating impact on abortion access. Again, 53% of abortions are medication abortions. Currently, 55% of women in the U.S., only 55% of women in the U.S. live in a county that has an abortion provider. And if mifepristone were taken away, that number would drop to 51%. But it would have a big impact. There are 10 states that would have a substantially larger uh, notable impact. So about 40% of clinics in the U.S. only offer medication abortion. And so, again, there's 10 states where if this was taken, if these clinics were taken away, if these providers were taken away, that substantially large proportions of people would no longer have access to abortion. And some of these are states that are actually supportive of abortion rights, states like Colorado, Washington, New Mexico. And again, just one example, in Colorado, it's currently the case that 82% of women living in Colorado live in a county that has an abortion provider. If mifepristone were no longer available, this number would drop to 56%. I think it's important the way that Guttmacher links health and rights, you know, and the way that your work shows that access, sometimes media presented as though um, we're talking about the United States and rights to access to abortion in the United States, but it varies very much, as you're just indicating, by region, by state, and then also by socioeconomic status. So there are a number of things to consider here in terms of this potential impact, yeah? Definitely. Um, Again, we know from decades of Guttmacher research on people who have abortions um, that it's people in disadvantaged populations, low-income populations, people of color, um, who access abortion at higher rates than other groups. And so by default, any restriction on abortion, whether it's a complete ban, a gestational ban, uh, a ban on a certain type of method, on a medication abortion, it's going to disproportionately impact these groups that are already, again, at a disadvantage. Well, and I think particularly when we're talking about medication abortion, you know, if you know, you know. If you never thought about it, then maybe you never thought about it. But there's a difference between 
having to go to a clinic where maybe you're going to go through a phalanx of, you know, red-faced people screaming at you and right. the ability to access that care in other ways. It's an important distinction, yeah? Definitely. You know, one of the one of the benefits of medication abortion of mifepristone is that it can be offered via telemedicine. You know, if there's a consultation, it can be done online or over the phone, and then the drugs can be mailed to somebody. There are online pharmacies that can provide medication abortion. This means that people, right, don't have to travel to a clinic, that they don't have to, in some cases, travel hundreds of miles to get to a clinic, that they don't have to worry about childcare and taking off time from work. So, again, medication abortion has the ability to, and has for a number of people, made abortion more accessible. Well, if you talk to staunch anti-abortion people, the conversation is is very rarely about science or about uh-huh. medicine, you know. Um, but then some of them and their media folks will throw around terms that sort of suggest that they're being sciencey. You know, they'll talk about right. viability or heartbeat, or they'll say it's about concern about the safety of drugs. And I just wonder, as a scientist who actually is immersed in this stuff, what do you make of the reporting on the medical reality of abortion? And and, and would more knowledge help inform the broader conversation or is it just two kind of different conversations? What do you think? Right. I definitely think it's two different conversations. Like I said, we have decades of scientific medical research establishing that medication abortion is safe, effective, and widely accepted. Um, People who don't support abortion choose to ignore uh, the science and the safety and dig for their own factoids and and supposed scientific facts to support their arguments. It's so strange how the media debate always seems to start again and again at point zero, you know, as though there were no facts in the matter or or, or no experience and as though women aren't experts on their own experience, you know. Um, Well, finally, we see things like the Women's Health Protection Act, you Mm -hmm. know, federalizing the right to abortion, I know the law is not necessarily your purview, but in terms of responding to these court moves and these state-level moves, do you think that federal action is is the way to go? Certainly, that is one solution, right? The Women's Health Protection Act would enshrine uh, the right to abortion federally, but we also need, and especially in the current environment, I don't want to say Women's Health Protection Act is pie in the sky, but given everything that's going on right now— we also need federal and state policymakers to step up to restore, protect, and expand access to abortion. A lot of these restrictions are imposed. I mean, quite frankly, you know, the right to abortion was removed because of Roe, and that allows states to impose pretty much any restriction that they want to. We're seeing from all these uh, different laws that are being implemented. And so it really is a lot of times at the state level, and certainly in the current environment, the state level is what we might need to focus on. And then anything you would like to see more of or less of from journalism in this regard? You know, when it, on medication abortion, I, it seems like the media is actually doing a decent job of mm-hmm. covering the issue, of acknowledging, again, the decades of research showing that medication abortion is safe, effective, and commonly used. I guess the only issue we might have is one that you see anytime that abortion is the subject of media stories. And that is a lot of times reporters think, well, if they have to 
take a fair and balanced approach, that means that they have to talk to the people who oppose abortion. And again, when this is about science and facts and research, then you don't need to talk to people who don't believe in it, don't believe in sound science, or who are going to ignore, again, decades of, of solid medical research. All right, then. We've been speaking with Rachel K. Jones, Principal Research Scientist at Guttmacher Institute. You can find their myriad resources online at guttmacher.org. Thank you so much, Rachel Jones, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Sure thing. Thank you for having me. Thousands of teachers, full-time, tenured, part-time, adjunct, grad students, counselors, and others at New Jersey's Rutgers University went on strike this month in unprecedented labor action at the 257-year-old institution. Workers standing up anywhere can have rippling effects, but somehow when it is educators at a public university there seems to be an added opportunity to find some lessons in the fight. The story at Rutgers is still unfolding. We're joined now for an update by Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers and New Brunswick Chapter President of Rutgers AAUP-AFT. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Donna Murch. Hi, Janine. It's a pleasure to be here. You know I'm a big fan of the show. Well, thank you very much. Listeners should know we're recording on Thursday, April 20th, and I'm reading that the strike is over and also that it's not over. And I also hear that some (laughs) real concrete gains uh, that workers were calling for have been secured. So maybe fill us in on the current state of affairs. So we went on strike last Monday, not this past Monday, but roughly 10 days ago, and it was the first strike in Rutgers' 257-year history of its academic workers. There was a strike, I think, in 1987 of AFSCME workers. An injunction was used against them, but uh, there's never been a strike of academic workers, and this is a big deal because it is a multi-union strike, and it is cross-job category. So it includes three unions the Rutgers AAUP-AFT, which covers grad workers, postdocs, EOS counselors, non-tenure track lecturers, full-time faculty, and tenure stream faculty. And the university is a very hierarchical place. And so our union includes these many different categories, which is quite rare. It goes back to 1970. But we've managed to build a powerful campaign that has bought all these different groups together, as well as forming a direct alliance with the PTLSC, which is the part-time lecturers for faculty, and the BHSNJ, which is the Union for Medical Workers. So this is really quite remarkable. There are 9,000 people. There were 9,000 people on strike from last Monday to Friday. And then after a marathon bargaining session at the governor's mansion, and I can talk about what's happening with that because it's quite important to understanding the dynamic, they came to an agreement that's called a legal framework. It's not yet a tentative agreement, which is a legal category. So first you start with a framework, then the tentative agreement, and then the signed contract. So we're still in that process 
of bargaining, both economic and non-economic demand. Uh, we agreed as an executive council to suspend the strike to continue negotiations. And there were several reasons this happened. The first is that we have been under a lot of pressure. Sadly, our president, Jonathan Holloway, who came to Rutgers in July 2020, he has proved very, very anti-union. I think there are ways that you could argue that he's the most anti-union president that we've had. So when it became clear that negotiations were breaking down, we have not had a contract now for almost 290 days. Our contracts of all the unions at Rutgers, with the exception of ASME, were up in June. And the administration has just been terrible. They often wouldn't come to the bargaining table when they did. They would repeat the same things over and over. They refused to address specific proposals by all the different job categories, including the graduate students who submitted their proposals in May. And we've only begun bargaining them uh, over the last month, as true of many other categories of workers, as well as proposals. So when the negotiations began to break down about a month ago, Jonathan Holloway sent a letter directly from the president to all of the different faculty, grad workers, all the different categories within our bargaining unit. And he also sent it to all of the undergraduates. And it was a very threatening letter. He said that public sector strikes in New Jersey are illegal, and those that participate in them can be the individuals can be fined, the unions can be fined, and there's threat of arrest. And to engage in this kind of job action would be met with essentially the penalty. Now, what was striking about this is that it is not true. Public sector strikes in New Jersey are not illegal. There is no statute covering them. In order to make a strike illegal, the employer, in this case, Jonathan Holloway, if there's a strike, he goes to a court and seeks an injunction. And then once he gets it, sometimes they're granted, sometimes they're not. Most of the injunctions against public sector workers, sadly, have been used by against grade school teachers and K-12 through teachers in school districts. So once you get the injunction, you go back to the striking workers, usually with a cease and desist order, to tell them to stop. And then if they don't stop, then you have to go to a second hearing and seek penalties. And those penalties can include what I said. The one that I left out is that the kind of complet that's available is a penalties for the whole union, penalties for individuals that cannot be paid by the union, arrest or firing. So, you know, this was a shot across the bow in a working class state like New Jersey that has really tough, gritty class politics, and he miscalculated. So I think that both his strong anti-union stance and he chose a representative, Chris Christie's head of labor relations, who worked for the Christie administration from 2010 to 2014. This is the chief bargainer that our president chose. So I think he really miscalculated what it's like to be at a public university like Rutgers and that the students, the workers of all kinds are infuriated by this. And it's been met with a real vibrant forms of industrial organizing. You know, we talk about it as intersectional organizing and 
21st century industrial unionism in the public sector, which has really, I think, become really the vanguard in one of the most radical wings, partially because people are fighting for public infrastructure, making demands not just about wages, but also bargaining for the common good. You know, news media seem to virtually always reduce any striking workers' demands to more money, you know. But you're articulating it in a much more complicated and and interesting, frankly, context. You know, workers' compensation isn't something that happens in a vacuum. And, And here at Rutgers, you know, never mind wider society, but here at Rutgers, it's priorities in terms of the use of resources that are at issue, right? Absolutely. I think this point about wages is incredibly important because first it, you know, I've been thinking a lot about why this movement is emerging now and what its relationship was even to the world that I grew up in, which was, you know, I was still coming of age under the cold war, you know, in the seventies and eighties. Right. And the attack on the labor movement was so profound and it's, it happens at a time when also the composition of labor unions is changing, of organized labor itself and becoming more female, blacker, and browner. And it's in this period that we actually begin to see the real strikes at the public sector. And those two things are happening simultaneously for multiple reasons. But, you know, I always think of George Meany, you know, the first head of the AFL-CIO who said, Uh, The organized fellow is the fellow that counts. Mm. And that was the kind of unionism that, first of all, sacrificed all questions of labor and supported anti-communist Cold War violence all over the country, including Vietnam. But the domestic focus was on a unionism for the most elite workers, white, male, and craft. So today it's interesting because the university itself is also trying to push us towards wage demands. The thing that's made the union strong is trying to speak to each job category and to privilege the lowest paid, and that includes the adjunct workers, the graduate faculty, and the EOF counselors. So you have tenure-track faculty using, and we're all doing this using tenure, to fight for the contingent categories of labor. So in that sense, it's a really exciting thing. But it's, you know, whenever I talk to reporters, and I've done a lot of media work, I do this work of, you. of course, you already knew but trying to explain to them why we need to focus on other demands. That said, industrial campaigns are really hard. This is the first strike. And I think having all these job categories is great for building power. But when you come to the bargaining table, you confront the long history of really anti-labor union practices. And I think I've learned many things. Of course, we're still in the midst of it. You asked where we are now. This is what Thursday. So it is, the fourth day of our suspension, you don't include the weekend. So I think there's going to be a discussion tonight where we get updates from the bargaining table and decide if we're going to resume the strike. There are reasons to resume the strike. You know, there are many demands that we would still like to win, including better language and structures for our non-economic proposals, including five years of graduate funding that's centrally funded and our bargaining for the common good demands to serve communities in New Jersey and fight for undergraduate debt relief. So we'll see. You know, it's, it's very important to know that our strike is suspended, not ended. 
and that we may go back on strike depending on what the union decides. We do not yet have a tentative agreement. But being involved in this process and seeing bargaining, what I always thought was bargaining is that the problem were people that had narrow demands. But seeing people that I know very well and respect a great deal go through bargaining, it just shows me that, you know, we're having a, a powerful resurgence of labor organizing, but we're still confronting the narrowness of the possibilities and we're trying to squeeze ourselves through those narrow channels and widen them, hopefully for all workers, just as, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union, the UTLA Teachers Union in Los Angeles, the, you know, red tide in Oklahoma and in West Virginia widened the tide for us. One of the reasons that I know that people are seeing what's happening at Rutgers as super hopeful is, first of all, the win, the concrete win of increased wages for some folks and acknowledgement and visibility. But it's also the coalitional nature of the work. Tenured professors standing in solidarity with grad students, with uh, researchers and teachers, and then also students, you know, who are refusing the frame that some politicians and some media are using that suggests that their interests are pitted against those of faculty. The breadth of this effort has been important, hasn't it? It has. I think it's been incredibly important. And this is a way to build power. I also think that one thing I find exciting about Rutgers is that we all know about the incredible social inequality in the U.S. and how it's getting worse day by day. And the only solution I see for this is greater labor organizing, period. Now, I've been involved in many different kinds of activism throughout my life, but I decided to really get involved in the union movement around 2015, 2016, because I saw clearly the rise of racial fascism, you know, the election of Trump. And then later I was in Brazil right after Bolsonaro was elected. And it was one of the most frightening experiences that I've had. And it wasn't because I saw things that were frightening. It had to do with the level of fear of the people that I was visiting, some of whom had had family members killed in the military dictatorship. So I think that the labor unions now, you know, real left labor unions, like the kind we had before Taft-Hartley, are really important for economic gains and also as political opposition. Thank you, Donna Murch, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced each week by FAIR, the media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows or transcripts, you can find all of that at FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.